Hello and welcome to the Bjarkness podcast. I'm Stephen Outen here with my colleague Ingild Pilskog. Well, good day. And we work for the Bjarkness Centre for Climate Research. Today we're discussing melting ice sheets and their effect on sea level rise. The global consequences of melting ice in a warming world is one of the grand challenges put forward by the World Climate Research Programme. But how much do we expect sea level to rise? How quickly will it occur? And is it inevitable? We're joined today by David Chandler, a researcher at Norse working on understanding this problem. David, welcome to the show. Hi. So, Earth has ice in many different locations. There are glaciers high in the mountain ranges, um, there's sea ice covering the Arctic Ocean and around Antarctica, and of course there are two great ice sheets covering Greenland and Antarctica. So how do these different sources of uh, potential melting water uh, compare in terms of their contribution to sea level rise? Well, they're, they're very different sizes for a start. So there are lots of small glaciers dotted around the world, mm -hmm. um, including in Europe, and these are all making a small contribution to sea level rise now. But there's obviously only a limited capacity in these small glaciers, whereas the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland are, are far bigger, so they have a, a much bigger potential contribution to sea level rise. But over a longer time scale because they take longer to melt. Would it be safe to say then that um, if you took all of the sort of mountain glaciers there'd still only be a small contribution compared to just like Greenland or Antarctica which is huge? Yeah that's right yeah, yeah. and then Antarctica itself is a lot bigger than Greenland in yeah. terms of volume that could melt. If they did melt like Greenland and Antarctica then being the primary sources um, how much would they actually change sea level? I think Greenland's got about six or seven metres sea level rise potential, mm -hmm. whereas Antarctica's much bigger, it's more like 50 or 60 metres, if that's it all melts. That's which, ten times yeah. as much, that's yeah. 60 metres of sea level rise, that's, that's unbelievable. That's every coastal city in the world completely underwater pretty much. Or yeah, if it, if it all melted, yeah. yeah. So that's the big question. But is it likely that it all melts? Not for a long time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how much of it melts and, and how quickly that happens is something that a lot of people are working on. So how fast are the ice sheets melting and how can we tell? So one of the ways we can tell is by measuring the size of the ice sheets themselves or the, th the, th the thickness of the ice, which is I think mostly done from satellite measurements. And another way is by measuring sea level directly as well, which I think is mostly done around the coast at tide gauges. Yeah, to this, uh, mm. I mean, the tide gauge network is immense. And while satellites got to be a little tricky because it only goes back a few decades, the tide gauges could be quite valuable because some of those have been around for a century or so. There's a hundred years of records. Yeah, I think so. That's the, that's the big problem with the satellite based observations at the moment is the short time series we have. So there's always the problem of internal variability 
the idea that you're seeing some sort of change but with a short time scale you can't really tell if that's a variation or if that's actually a trend although under a warming world we'd very much expect it to be a clear trend. Yeah that's right it's always a challenge to separate long-term trends from natural variability when you've only got a short time series. With something like Antarctica and even in the case of Greenland I think there's a disconnect for some people. Um, I mean how on earth can Antarctica be melting? I mean people watch it in like nature documentaries looking at the penguins and stuff and Antarctica is this monstrous frozen wilderness. The average temperature there is like minus 10 to minus 60. Um, how on earth can ice be melting there? Well it's true it's a very cold place and when you see pictures of Antarctica you don't tend to see any evidence of water on the surface like there's no rivers or anything there but a lot of the melting occurs out of sight underneath the ice particularly around the edges where, where, where the, the glaciers that drain the Antarctic ice sheet where these glaciers flow into the ocean they form these big floating ice shelves mm -hmm. and because they're floating the seawater can get underneath them and this seawater can be it's still cold but it's say a few degrees and that's enough to melt the bottom of the ice shelf. So rather than actually just being sort of the cold air over the top that's warming and it's it's getting warm enough that the ice is melting on top the main melting is actually coming from you know deeper water in the sea that comes in that's warm and it's it's carving away underneath. Yeah that's right yeah it's the it's the ocean that does most of the melting yeah. and then the other the other process is the is icebergs carving as well so these these same floating ice shelves eventually when, when you get to the edge of them the, the icebergs break off mm. and they they float off into the southern ocean and eventually mm. they'll melt in the warmer temperatures. Well, some of these icebergs have uh, definitely made the news in the recent years. Um, a, a, a68 iceberg in 2017 that was twice the size of Luxembourg. Um, that was absolutely enormous. Um, you're getting lumps of ice carved off that are the size of a country or more and floating out into the Southern Ocean. Yeah, there's been a few quite high profile large icebergs come off of the ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula. And I guess that's one of the challenges we have with the short time series of observations is that we don't really know how frequently these occur and are these big ice shelf collapses of a part of a sort of ongoing natural cycle or is it is it a sign of sudden changes to do with global warming? So it's actually possible that during the last hundred years massive icebergs like this have actually been carving off of Greenland in a or Antarctica in a steady stream and they come off occasionally just another one breaks off floats around and melts into the sea and it's part of the, just the natural process. Yeah well I think I think it takes quite a long time for those ice shelves to build up again so I'm not sure if it'd be as frequent as every, you know, every hundred years but, but yeah every thousand or so years perhaps. Yeah entire mm. ice shelf. Are there any feedback effects like when such a huge iceberg is breaking off is that sort of like stops the uh, stops the melting or uh, for that for a time period or does it increase in tempo? Well there's 
I guess there's two possible effects you could consider. One, one is how much the ice impacts the ocean itself. So it's, uh, there's a lot of fresh water stored in one of those icebergs. And all that fresh water is then released into the southern ocean as the iceberg melts. And one of the, one of the impacts of increasing melt in Antarctica could be freshening of the surface of the southern ocean. And because fresh water is quite light, it kind of sits as a, a fresh surface layer on top of the saltier water underneath. And that can affect heat and gas exchange with the Southern Ocean. And then in turn, because the oceans are all connected together and because ocean circulation is quite an important part of the climate system, if you're making changes to circulation in the Southern Ocean, that can have global um, global consequences with climate. So that's one that's one part of it. And then another part of it is the loss of the ice itself and how that affects the flow of ice behind it in, in the continent. So the the ice shelves along the edge of Antarctica Antarctica they they help to stop ice flowing off the continent as it were, it's sort of like a buttressing effect. So if you remove those, then the ice further inland accelerates and you lose more ice from the centre of Antarctica. So um, these ice shelves are actually acting to block the flow of the ice coming off of Antarctica. So once it's removed, it just all speeds up. Yeah, that's it. it's kind of like a break. How does the ice actually move around on Antarctica? So... In the middle of Antarctica, where it's very, very cold and quite flat, um, the ice there is really, really thick. It's maybe, I think it's over 4,000 metres thick in the very centre. And because it's so thick, it deforms under its own weight. Like It's very like a very viscous fluid. So if you imagine really thick syrup or treacle, mm -hmm. and over centuries and centuries and centuries, it gradually spreads out like this viscous fluid towards the edge, and then it's replaced by more snow accumulation. And as it gets closer to the edge of Antarctica, the flow gets organised more into these ice streams, which are like rivers of really fast moving ice. Relatively fast moving ice. Relatively, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could probably still outrun it if you tried. <laughs> And the, these uh, these flow more by sliding over the sediments and bedrock, and that's helped by meltwater at the bottom of the ice. So, that, so the um, the bottom of the ice sheet there is quite warm, like it's at the melting point, and the meltwater lubricates the bottom of the ice, so that it causes it to flow very fast, relatively. So yeah, so in the centre it's mostly flowing by viscous deformation, yep. viscous creep. And then towards the edges where you get these ice streams, it's mostly by sliding and sediment deformation at the, at the very bottom of the ice stream. How, how, do we, how do we know that? How do we measure that? How do we go and see that? I mean, how do you see this sort of deformation and creep and 
how do you know that there's how could you possibly know that there's water at the bottom of a four kilometer thick slab of ice that's lubricating it as it slides across bedrock i mean no one's gone down there to look well the ice streams are a little bit thinner than four kilometers so they're a, bit, they're a little bit easier to drill into but you can people people have drilled boreholes to the bottom of these ice streams and collected measurements on the speed of the sliding and and the temperature so people have looked well no one's actually been down there but, but we've sent instruments down there and the deformation is that mostly in the sort of central region of antarctica is that mostly done from satellite observation i'm not sure if there's been boreholes drilled there which they've collected deformation measurements from but um people have done lab experiments on on ice deformation mm -hmm. so a lot of the a lot of the knowledge on how ice creeps is is based on lab data yeah so you're trying to replicate the pressure and the temperatures in a laboratory yeah that's correct and that's that's one of the big challenges is trying to recreate those conditions in the lab because mm. most most of the deformation occurs near the bottom of the ice sheet where the pressure's mm. highest but it's quite hard to recreate that in a lab this sort of makes it sound like it's a, a relatively relatively simple model you have antarctica you get snow in the middle and it creeps outwards and then you get sort of it changing across to these ice streams flowing off the sides but in actual fact antarctica is a little bit different in different locations so you could sort of break it into two or three major areas sort of western and eastern and then the peninsula peninsula is again slightly different yeah that's right there's you could consider two, two main areas really East Antarctica is the bigger area or the bigger volume of ice and that's been around probably the longest as well I think it's 30 odd million years and mm. uh, it's got the thickest ice and a lot of East Antarctica the ice just sits there and slowly creeps outwards towards the edge there are a few areas where it's faster and then West Antarctica is the sort of younger more dynamic part of the ice sheet mm -hmm. and that's actually a lot of it's grounded below sea level so there you have these so-called marine ice sheet what? Wait, below sea level you mean that region of antarctica the rock is actually underneath the sea or the sea level i suppose because there's ice in the way yeah so in west antarctica the bedrock is mostly below sea, sea level so if you took the ice away now then it would just be flooded ocean yeah. is this mm. like a few feet below sea level or a few meters below sea level uh, it can be it can be hundreds of meters okay. yeah it's quite quite deep in places so western antarctica since that's uh, a lot of the bedrock is beneath sea level western antarctica will be more susceptible to warming ocean yeah that's right so in west antarctica you've got this situation where the the bedrock near the edge of the continent is slightly below sea level and as you get further inland towards the middle of the continent the bedrock gets further below sea level actually because of the weight of the ice pressing it down and in, a, in this situation the ice sheet could be stable now but because of the way the bedrock's configured if you cause a little bit of melting and the ice gets a bit thinner around the edges then that can set off this instability where you get really really rapid 
ice loss towards and um, so you get rapid retreat of the ice towards the center of the ice sheet and that that then continues until you get another part where the, it's stable mm. again on the bedrock this suggests that there would be certain sort of tipping points or critical levels that if we if it melts to a certain degree it will suddenly melt significantly more and then may not be replaceable yeah so this is one of the concerns is that with a, li a little bit of warming then you can instigate a little bit of retreat which then causes this yeah so it sets off this instability and so effectively you're passing this tipping point where the ice keeps retreating quite a long way yep. and the problem is then if you were able to reverse that warming so if you could cool the ocean temperature back down to its current temperature for example then that ice wouldn't then grow back so it's kind of like a permanent right. loss of ice. So even if we go back to pre-industrial levels we will still see a sea level rise for unforeseeable future. Yeah that's right you might have to cool the ocean back down to quite a few degrees below pre-industrial before you can then recover that mm. ice volume. So do we have any estimates on how close we are to that tipping point or have we already passed it? I think the current consensus is that most of the marine parts of the ice sheet are stable but the tipping point could be reached in in just a couple of degrees of warming so potentially quite close in some areas. So within this century then potentially? Yeah. You mentioned this I mean, this is starting to sound like a lot more complicated problem between the sort of viscous creep that we get from inner Antarctica and the, the, the streams, the ice streams around the coast, and then the ocean warm water carving away underneath the ice shelves, and then the sort of structure of the bedrock and these instabilities. This has all got to be pretty difficult to pull all of this together into a model and make a, a good quality, you know, estimates of future projection for this. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of different processes which you have to include. And so, yeah, people have been working on these ice sheet models for a few decades. And in that time, they've seen lots of advances, partly because computers have got more powerful, but partly because we're able to represent the physics better in those models. But yeah, the, the challenge really is is putting all these different parts of the model together, the, the middle of the ice sheet. Um, changes on very long time scales whereas the edges of the ice sheet are changing on very short time scales and also the the resolution that you need near the near the edge of the ice sheet is very small you need very high resolution yeah. whereas the resolution in the center you don't need such high resolution so there are a lot of ch challenges for modeling it um, and there's lots of groups internationally who are who are doing this and that's that's one of the advantages of having lots of people doing it is everyone has slightly different models and then you can put these together and compare lots of answers to try yeah. and build up a picture. There's a lot of this going on uh, in the world that has been for a number of years now uh, the sort of so-called uh, CMIP coupled model into comparisons and various other types of MIPS model into comparison projects where a large number of models from different institutes that have uh, different uh, configurations of the physics within them actually are sort of run and compared in order to give us a sort of broader view. Um, 
So is there such a thing for ice sheets? Yes, there's a, an ice MIP, which is the ice sheet model into comparison project. Yep. And they, they recently published their results from the last, from the last experiment for, Gre and for Greenland and Antarctica. And in, in that experiment, they, they use several different climate projections. Mm -hmm. And they also use uh, about a dozen different ice sheet models. And so with that range of climate projections and that range of ice sheet models, you then get quite a, a broad range of projections for the ice sheet contribution to sea level rise. So with all of these models, um, obviously all of them have within it the physics of all of these different processes you've discussed. Uh, how well are, these, are the physics of these processes actually understood? Well, some better than others. Um, the, the way that the ice creep is modelled is based on really lab experiments from, I think, maybe the 60s or 50s, well, say between the 50s and 70s. Yep. That's quite old. And sliding from, again, the 70s, 80s. So it's quite old. And I think that's probably one of the things that could be looked at again if we're trying to improve our um, representation of physics in these ice models is going back to these basic processes. So would uh, newer uh, lab experiments uh, add a great deal of value to this or is there more value to be obtained from going into the field and looking at these, pro these processes firsthand or do we need both? I think it'd be a combination of both, yeah, because now, now that the now that the computer models are so much better than they were 20 years ago, then I think there's definitely escape for now trying to improve the physics that's in those models. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a lot of these uh, field campaigns going on to look at um, both in Antarctica and the Greenland ice sheet. Um, and the Bjorkner Centre has been involved in a number of these. I think we've got PhD students out there now. Right, yes. In Greenland, right. so. So hopefully this will all bring back some measurements and more data and more knowledge that will be used to help tailor these models in the future. Yeah, it all helps, yeah. Yep. So I suppose uh, one of the big problems with this is just how do you talk to people about it? How do you talk to people outside of the science about it? Because whenever we hear about sea level rise or particularly from melting ice sheets, we're talking in terms of like millimetres per, per year or something like on this sort of scale. Um, whereas compared to other things like floods or heat waves or the wildfires, there is that really big difference between the scale of impact. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges because it's e the, the, the climatic impacts, like you say, like wildfires or floods, you can see them on TV and it's easy to... It's easy to see how things are changing, or whereas with sea level it just slowly increases and you, you wouldn't notice it from year to year. Mm. And also, I guess the Antarctic ice sheet is it's a long way from anywhere. No one can see it, yeah. except for the people that are there. Um, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's only going to be perhaps later in this century when the sea level starts rising a bit quicker perhaps that people suddenly think oh that really is a problem. 
I and then it's probably too late really to do much about it. I suppose one of the key differences here is simply that something like a traumatic flood or a heat wave or a wildfire is an event. It occurs and it lasts a short time and it ends. Um, maybe not so much with some of the wildfires at the moment, <laughs> yes, but, <that's> true. <laughs> <laughs> but something like sea level, particularly from melting ice sheets, is happening now. While we sit here, this minute, this day, mm. this week, month, year, next year, year after, it just keeps going. It's this constant, constant pressure being added to the, the climate system. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's just a very, very slow build-up, isn't it? So whereas mm. if you have a wildfire, then, yeah, that's really bad. But, you know, you can go and replant the forest, I suppose, mm. on, in, in some sense. Whereas ice, ice sheet melting, every year you get that extra centimetre or whatever it's going to be. But you can't really reverse that. Once again, we're coming to the end of the show. We'd like to thank our guest, David Chandler, for talking with us today. Thank you. Yes, yeah, it's been a pleasure. So the world is warming, the ice is melting and the water continues to rise. While this doesn't have an immediate and dramatic impacts, such as floods and heat waves do, it is relentless and continuous and for the foreseeable future, unstoppable. The processes are complicated and there's much work to be done, but there is a risk that we may soon pass tipping points in Antarctica, which will result in irreversible sea level rise. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again next time. From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingil Pilskog, thank you for listening. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Birkner Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and Institute of Marine Research, IMR. The music is from Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0. The recording was done at UIB Laringslaben at Media City Bergen. This podcast is produced by me, Ingel Pilskog, Associated Professor at the Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.